industry focus. The podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, January 8th, and we are talking about the top tech stocks for 2021. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's tenacious, trusted treasure trove of tippy-top tongue-twister titles, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how are you doing? Dylan, you're starting off the new year with nailing my title yet again, but it is good to see you, my friend. Well, you know, I had some encouragement. I was delighted to get the Feroldi family holiday card uh, over over the course of December. And, you know, that just reminded me, I got to stay on top of my game. We took a couple weeks off there, but I'm not sleeping. I'm still doing my tongue twisters, uh, even if we're not airing. <laughs> it's literally been, I think, three weeks since we had a Friday where we could do industry focus. So awesome to be back. In some ways, you know, it was nice to get the break, but I got to say, I'm ready. We've been planning. We've got a killer show. I'm really excited. Uh, we are going to be talking about the top tech stocks for us for 2021 um, in terms of kind of what we see out there and what we're interested in putting some money behind. We're also going to be talking a little bit about uh, the year that was with 2020 and both our biggest winners and some of our biggest regrets. Um, love this, though. We've had, we've had a week of people from Industry Focus pitching their top tech shows. We're giving people a nice, well-rounded basket of stocks for 2021. All the sectors represented, Brian. I think it's a great idea. And of course, we couldn't couldn't finish out this week without talking about some tech stocks because tech was, once again, the sector to be in in 2020. It was. And I I don't know about you. I'm someone that is heavily, heavily overweight tech. I figure, you know what? I'm a little bit more balanced when it comes to the stuff that's in my 401k and and some of my retirement accounts. For my personal brokerage account, I can be a little bit more focused. You know, I I can kind of invest individually in stocks that I follow and kind of understand more, take a little bit more risks. Because of that, my, my portfolio did pretty well in 2020, Brian. How about you? I'm not a big believer that you have to own stocks from every sector. My personal strategy is to own as many awesome companies as I can and as few terrible ones as I can. There's a lot of awesome tech stocks. So I, like you, am very exposed to the sector. Yeah, I think owning as few terrible companies as possible is is just a great mission statement for your for your portfolio. <laughs> um, Easier and, said than done. <laughs> but that's the beauty of being an individual stock picker, right? Is you get to choose. And uh, in in my case, you know, because of being overweight tech, and because you know the the beauty of the full community and the full universe had a lot of really great winners myself in 2020. Um, to give a couple uh, names and some shine there: DocuSign, Mercado Libre, Square all multi-bagger years for me. And really just, I think, businesses across the board that saw really big step changes in trends that were already going to be benefiting them, you know, and and boom, just to the next level, adoption skyrocketed. And I know the same is probably true for stuff you own, Brian. That's exactly what we saw in 2020. If you had a positive trend in your favor prior to 2020, the odds are pretty good it got sped up and your stock price went well, bananas. If you had a, t- a headwind uh, in 2020, the odds are pretty good that your stock got smashed. Since I tend to invest in companies that I think can grow for a long period of time, I had a lot of winners uh, in my portfolio. For me, my absolute biggest winner, I mean, it wasn't even close, it was Tesla. Uh, I've been invested in Tesla since 2013 or 20. 12, a long time, and I've added along the way. So Tesla putting up a 734% return in 2020, that certainly boosted my portfolio. Yeah. And you know, Brian, we've, we've talked about it on the show before, but 
there are folks out there that are listening that are Tesla shareholders and they're they're happy right alongside you. And there are probably some people that feel like they missed the boat. I can represent that side of things when it comes to Tesla. I uh, I think I had a, a basis of about 200 pre-split and around the, the private takeout point had kind of hit my limit and you know wound up selling. And it's hard to look at those gains and say, ah, man, the opportunity cost and, and what I wound up doing with that money instead. But if I'm being honest, I think... If I had held on, I would have been right for the wrong reason. I don't think it would have been aligned with kind of what I saw happening. And so, you know, it's it's a regret in a way, but I think ultimately I was true to kind of what I wanted there. And that's perfectly fine. Not every company, you don't have to own every big winner to do well. And there are lots of companies that you just uh, shouldn't own. And if there's if there's any company in the universe that is easy to have a wrong opinion on, uh, it was it is Tesla. So yes, n- no shame in, in, in selling or taking a pass on Tesla altogether. And I like your philosophy there of not having to own all of them. Because you take that step back and you look at your overall portfolio performance, right? And if you're outperforming the S&P 500, you're beating most people. And so, you know, if, if you could take that step back and see great returns, and thankfully, you know, I was, I was in that position for 2020, um, then, you know, it makes it a little easier to swallow some of those huge winners uh, that, that you don't have a ticket to. But, you know, I mean, the reality is there are a lot of really great winners in the full universe, and uh, I'm lucky enough to own several of them. So I, I think you said something that's really worth double-clicking on. How did your portfolio do versus whatever benchmark you are measuring, you know, whatever you would be invested in if you weren't stock picking? Stock picking is wonderful. It's super, it's super fun. It's highly engaging. But if you are stock picking and you are not outperforming indexes over lengthy periods of time, you're doing extra work to be less wealthy. So make sure you measure your returns against a benchmark. Yeah. And, and I will say, if you're using the S&P 500, use the total return. There are some people that just look at the price return. Look at the total return. Don't, don't slight yourself there. Make sure that you're holding yourself accountable because there'll be an extra 1% or 2% there um, because of the dividends being reinvested. That's a good point, Dylan. <laughs> so I bared my soul a little bit with Tesla, Brian. When it, when it comes to the past year, what, what do you personally have a regret with when you look at your portfolio or some of the decisions that you made? It's really easy to look backwards in time and play the woulda, shoulda, coulda game. It's 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 not that hard to look back and say, wow, Wayfair is like a 20-bagger off of its low. I really should have put all my money into, into Wayfair in March because, of course, it wasn't going to disappear. And, of course, home furnishing was going to take off immediately after that. That's not a very useful exercise because would you have made that decision in real time with the information that you had at the time. So I don't like to look backwards and, 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 and say, I did this wrong, I did that wrong. I think it's okay to look back, see what happened, and see if you can learn lessons from them that you can apply forward. But I don't really have any big regrets. But for the sake of saying something, <laughs> I do remember the day that Pinterest hit $10 per share, and I said, that makes no sense. Like that price makes no sense. This is a very high quality business. I think it can grow for a long period of time. And that was pretty much the low. So when I said that to myself, I should have been quiet about it on industry on, on Martin Full Live and bought like crazy. <laughs> and that's one of the things with what we do, right? Because we talk about businesses so often, we have our trading rules in place here at The Fool uh, that can occasionally lock us out from buying something that we might be very, very interested in doing. Uh, but, you know, it's important. We, we think that that's, that's a really valuable element of what we do here. Um, I will say, Brian, I, I went through that full arc of had a couple winners that I missed out on and had the teachable moment for myself from it. And 
I think what's hard, and, and maybe what might be helpful for listeners, is we talk all the time about getting skin in the game on something that you want to own. And even as someone who says it a lot, I still don't always manage to do it. And there are two businesses in particular with 2020, um, one of them Datadog, another one Zoom, where I remember doing the S1 shows on those companies. I remember loving everything about them, you know, and, and they were just compelling, best in class companies, great retention rates, checked all the boxes, the valuation spooked me. And ultimately, that's what scared me off from getting a starter position. And I think my teachable moment for myself with 2020 is, particularly if it's that first position, just take a small bite. I say it all the time, but just take a small bite. You know, the difference between having something in your brokerage account and tracking it and not having it is huge in terms of how much you pay attention to it. I think that's a wonderful lesson, but that is an incredibly hard lesson to to internalize. If you like everything, but the price is just insane, it's awfully hard to buy if you have any valuation bent at all. Uh, for example, what about Snowflake today? Like, it seems like a really great business. Will you pay 200 times sales for a company that's worth uh, $100 billion plus? Boy, is that really hard to do. And the good news is, if you really like Zoom, that stock has been falling <laughs> drastically. So you might have another chance, Dylan. Hey, yeah, you never know when the discounts are going to come, right? Things go on sale when you don't expect them to. <laughs> That's right. But I, I do like the general point that you're making. If a company checks a lot of boxes for you, just get a little bit of skin, skin of the game to to put it in your in, on your radar and hope that the price declines so you can add to your position over time. Yeah, and, and I think the reason I'm, I'm harping on that a little bit for myself is, you know, you have your watch list. And in my case, you know, it's it's a physical list. Sometimes it's a digital list, you know, in a, in a Google Drive folder or something like that. But I tend to revisit that list when I have cash, just as a matter of investing process. And what I notice is I'm far more in tune with what I own. And I wind up checking my brokerage account pretty much daily. And so it's a lot easier for me to spot opportunities in stuff that I own um, or see success in stuff that I own, just because I'm, I'm regularly in the routine of checking that. And I'm not so frequently checking my watch list and updating it, which is another lesson, I think, for me. Um, so you know, if you're only putting a small amount of money towards it, there's nothing wrong with really liking everything and then being like, you know what, it's got to grow into this valuation. But as we saw, the step changes can happen, Brian, and then the valuation can start making a lot more sense. It's very, very difficult to do that with you, Dylan. So yes, I have made that mistake and I can <laughs> guarantee I will make that mistake constantly for the rest of my investing career. <laughs> Listeners, you'll hear us doing this show on Snowflake in exactly a year's time. <laughs> <laughs> um, Brian, you, you talked about your regret being Pinterest. I, I feel like that's a half regret because as it turns out, you did wind up having a position in the stock. And if I'm not mistaken, it's your stock for 2021. That is correct. Uh, when I looked at my portfolio, I was like, what stock has done really well that I think is going to be permanently benefited uh, because of, of COVID? Uh, I just came back to Pinterest. While the stock has done extremely well uh, in, in 2020, I still think the growth story here is just getting started. So when I look back and the most, the most recent numbers we have to work off is the, the third quarter, uh, Pinterest reported 37% growth in users. And this is at a pretty decent scale. So they're at 442 million users with the bulk of that growth uh, coming in international markets. So about two thirds or three quarters of their users are in um, international markets. And Pinterest said that they're seeing particular growth in the from users under age 25. That's really attractive to me because that is where advertisers want to put their uh, dollars behind. And 
over time, the purchasing power of that cohort uh, will certainly grow. And beyond just the, the growing user numbers, which I think were boosted uh, heavily uh, from, from COVID, uh, Pinterest also rolled out a number of tools during the year that are really going to make its platform much more attractive for advertisers uh, as well as for, for posters. Um, they made a big push into video. My wife is a heavy Pinterest user, and she absolutely says, I, I've been seeing tons more videos on the sites than I ever have before. They also launched an automatic bidding feature for advertisers and they launched this product in July and in the third quarter it already represented half of the company's conversion revenue. I mean, talk about success uh, with a product that easy. It's it's clear that those kind of tools are are, are very very useful uh, for advertisers. The reason I'm so bullish on uh, Pinterest easing from up here though has to do with. ARPU, average revenue per user. Pinterest is so early in its monetization uh, efforts. In the, in the third quarter, it pulled in on average $1.03 off of the average user uh, on, on its platform. Uh, for comparison, Facebook in the same period, $7.90. So Facebook is pulling in more than seven times the revenue per user. Uh, now, Facebook is been monetizing for much longer. It has a lot more data, but I think that the drumbeat away from Pinterest, uh, excuse me, away from Facebook and Twitter uh, is just going to get louder and louder. And Pinterest doesn't have to deal with any of those problems. So I think between the growing user base, as well as the company's continued monetization efforts, the next 10 years plus, we'll see double digit growth for this company. Yeah, I think that ARPU comparison is probably one of the most succinct and compelling theses you can have on a company, right? Like if you think Pinterest is going to ultimately grow to match the worst, most prevalent social media company, that means that they still have a two and a half X on their current ARPU. Right. Exactly. And, uh, and as they roll out the tools, and as to me, the big thing is that they're, they're not plagued with any of the negativity that many other platforms are. And I've seen the power of the platform uh, in real time where my wife, my wife goes on, she looks at some image she's like, and she's like, what about this? And it's like, okay, yep, that makes sense for our life. Let's buy that thing. Uh, I think that a lot of users are going to do that exact same journey. Yeah. And I'm interested in that growth in the age under 25 element, Brian, because I think that that's a little bit of like a narrative shifting data point for a platform like Pinterest, right? Like when, when we talk about accessing the, is that, is that Gen Z sub 25? Is that the market we're talking sure. about? You've sold me. It's Gen Z. <laughs> People under 25. We're going to leave it at that. So I don't step in it and say something that that's the wrong label. Um, but for that market, typically we're talking about Instagram. And for a long time, it was Snapchat as like the go-to way for advertisers to access that market. If they're able to really build themselves as someone that can offer advertisers access there, um, that that's another major selling point for them as they go out to advertisers. I, I think that's completely right. And again, why do people go to Pinterest? Like, we'll back it up. Why do people go to Facebook? People go to Facebook to connect with and see photos of their of their friends and family. Why do people go to Twitter to communicate with each other? Why do people go to Pinterest to see images that will, will that will inspire them to do something in their life? Of those three, I think that Pinterest is the most natural place to go for advertising. And they called this out right in their S1. Advertisements do not compete with native content. Advertising is the native content. So not only do I think that there's room for Pinterest to grow its ARPU to match Facebook over time, 
it would not shock me if in time they eclipse Facebook. Yeah. Advertisements that naturally fit into native content is is basically the advertiser's dream. You know, we we see that in written content and video content all the time. Um, and, and I think that it, the closer and closer you can get to that and the way that it doesn't feel intrusive on the consuming experience, the better. The other thing, and, and listeners may be able to figure this out by now. I don't own Pinterest, but it is basically in the top three on my <laughs> 2020 Dylan get a stake in this company list. Um, one of the other things that is just so compelling to me is the automatic bidding process because that gives you scale. And and that is one of those things that if you are running a platform, you need advertisers to be able to participate at scale. And then you see numbers start really taking off. The fact that they are early on in that means that these numbers are probably going to start getting big pretty quickly in the following years. And let's remember, last quarter, revenue growth, 58%. Gross margin expanded 400 basis points to 75%. So that's Almost 60% top line growth combined with a gross margin of 75%. They have crossed into the profitability on an adjusted basis. They have tons of stock-based compensation, uh, which is dragging them down. But uh, even though the stock has uh, gone up a lot uh, in 2020, the valuation to me is not insane. It's high, but it's not insane. 29 times sales, but more importantly, because they're focusing, uh, they're now focused on producing non-GAAP uh, earnings, they're trading at less than 100 times next year's earning estimates. That's a high number, very high number. But given that I think that there's operating leverage ahead and there's huge room for them to grow their top line, I don't think it's crazy. And I think it's helpful to take that valuation and, and not just look at it as a multiple on earnings or sales, but look at it overall and how it stacks up to some other social media companies, right? We're talking about a business that's worth just over $40 billion. For a social media business, a a digitally scalable business, that is not that big. It really isn't. And when you factor in the the ad load coming, um, them getting better and better about bringing advertisers in, there's a lot to like, and it's not very hard to see this business being multiples bigger five years from now. It really isn't. To, to your point, uh, Facebook is worth $755 billion, and I still think that number is going to go up uh, too, by the way. I could see, I could very easily see Facebook being a trillion-dollar company someday. So yes, uh, I don't think Pinterest will ever match Facebook's s- s- size and scale, but is there room for it to grow between $40 billion and $800 billion? I think so. Yeah. I, I think them being a $100 billion-plus company in five years is, is not hard to forecast. You know, if if everything kind of goes according to plan and the thesis plays out, that's a relatively easy thing to see. And that's kind of what we like, right, Brian? We like easy. We don't like hard. I look forward to you joining me as a shareholder, Dylan. <laughs> I'll let you know when it happens. Um for me, for for my top stock, I've I've two because I don't wanna I don't want to shortchange, folks. I did wind up pitching a business uh, when we did our all-host roundtable that aired on December 23rd. So I'll give people a quick recap on that. And beautifully, Brian, this is a company that you're familiar with. So so we can kick this one around a little bit. Um, But for folks that listened to that episode, you heard me talk about Axon. Um, I I think that that was my stock basically for the next year. But I think just in general, wonderful business. For the folks that are not super familiar, it's the company that's formerly known as Taser. They rebranded to reflect the fact that they are focused on their Axon body cameras and the evidence.com cloud storage business. Um, And the short thesis here is basically they supply body cameras that you see law enforcement wearing. Um, And when it comes to that market, Brian, they are basically the only game in town. They're the only ones there. 
That's correct. They have as strong as a competitive position as you can have uh, in a market. And I believe they got there in the body camera to, uh, by both organically and through acquisition, if memory serves. I think that's right. Yeah. And, and you're, you're getting to the deep recesses in my brain there. Um, <laughs> but, but, but really, this went from being something that was a tiny portion of their business and really something that had to play out over time to what we have seen become a very large contributor to revenue. And so what I like is we've seen the thesis materialize. Um, Axon Cloud grew 40% in 2019. The sensors grew 60% in 2019. Uh, management sees margin expansion across the board in all of its major segments. I think the body camera and the cloud storage is only going to become a larger part of this company going forward. And from the investing side, that's high margin revenue on the cloud side. These are uh, recurring revenue cycles for them. They have customers that are going to be locked in for a long time, and they are the only player in this space, which you love. You love to see that. And and I think importantly, Brian, for me with this one, it's a really easy company to get behind. Um, I'm going to highlight three points from the mission slide of their most recent earnings presentation. One, obsolete the bullet. Two, reduce social conflict. Three, enable a fair and effective justice system. And really, when, when I look at a company like Axon, what they're trying to do, um, they're trying to save lives, carry out more uh, fair and equitable justice, and they are trying to add accountability and provide an unbiased record of what happens when things happen. And I think it's something that's good for civilians, it's good for law enforcement, it's just a win-win all around. I like to look at the softer side of investing things, and uh, Axon here is one of Brian Stoffel's biggest uh, holdings and investments. And one of the reasons why is because it probably has the best mission statement uh, I've ever heard, which is to protect life. Three words, ridiculously inspirational, very simple, and that is what the company is hyper focused on. Now that's all great, and uh, I do like you said about the 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 uh, body camera business, to me, what makes it such a compelling investment is the software. The software that underpins it all and how much emphasis that they're putting on getting that software into uh, into police uh, offices. Once the software is in there and it works seamlessly with the hardware that goes in there, that creates a product ecosystem that, to me, just reminds me of Amazon. And it's, uh, excuse me, it reminds me of Apple. And it's no stretch, I think, to call this company the Apple of law enforcement. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to pitch this one, Brian, is I think um, there are probably a lot of folks out there that look at the tech space and are really scared of some of the valuations that they're seeing right now. And there are a variety of reasons why you know the, the multiples have been expanded for a lot of these companies. We're seeing SaaS companies that have recurring revenue, very high margin revenue uh, coming in, and we're trying to figure out how to value them. But also, you know, there's, there's really not a lot of money to be made in putting money into debt. So there's a lot of money going to the stock market, a lot of money going into real estate. Um, I look at this company and I say, there are a lot of elements of it that are exactly what you want in a tech business. You have high margin revenue coming in. It's really sticky. What I really like in their case, though, is this is something that law enforcement needs to have. You know, they are they are basically installed with who they already have relationships with. They're not going anywhere, and they're only really going to be adding customers. I don't see this going away, really, no matter what happens. It's it's I think it's kind of the new normal, and um, that's good for a lot of people. But I think on the investing side, it means that yes, there are there are elements of this that are tech, but this is a much more stable tech investment than a lot of things we'll normally talk about on the show. 
I think margins are going to grow too as their software offering uh, software offering gets out there and becomes more popular. And this is a company that purposely uh, was profitable and then went backwards as it invested aggressively uh, to both develop its software capabilities and get them out there into police offices for, I think, free for the first to first year or something like that. They knew that once police officers uh, offices gave this product a try, that they were going to be uh, become heavily reliant on it. So it's a strategy that I think over the next five years will produce huge growth in earnings. So since I pitched that one already, Brian, I, I want to give somebody, you know, some folks that are listening something new as well. I, I feel like it's it's only fair. Um, and so I will add another one. And we're we're kind of talking up our own book here, Brian, because you own Pinterest. I will be a shareholder when, when I'm able to be a shareholder. I already own Axon. And this third company I'm going to name, um, I own, I believe you might own it as well. And that is Mercado Libre. We, we talked about it briefly before being a huge winner in 2020. Um, it has been a huge winner Basically, no matter how far back you look, I don't see that ending anytime soon. Well, uh, Tesla is my number one holding. My number two holding, Dylan, is Mercado Libre, if that gives you any sense of <laughs> what I think about the long-term potential of the business. Yeah, and it's it's my largest holding. Um, some of that is you know me putting the money behind it, but a huge chunk of that is really just the share price appreciation, the fact that the business has continued to execute and there are few companies that I think benefit from as many mega trends as Mercado Libre does. It is so squarely positioned behind e-commerce, digital payments, fintech, and that space is absolutely exploding. And, and I think what is particularly incredible about this business is they operate in fragmented markets in South America that insulates them a lot from competitive pressure. And what we're seeing with them, when we talk about this a little bit with Mercado Pago, uh, their payment solution is they've created things that are being used within their ecosystem, but they have also made the leap to being used off of their ecosystem and have basically become the way that people transact without traditional financial systems. To me, Mercado Libre is a case study in the power of optionality. Uh, when I first became aware of this business, it was pretty much the eBay of Latin America, uh, and that's it. You could make a very compelling argument today that this company is the PayPal of Latin America with an eBay kicker uh, to it. Not only that, but they have invested heavily uh, in the logistics side of their platform, and they're even getting into the asset management uh, business. So this company has proven itself to be incredibly innovative to roll out new products and services, and it is winning everywhere that it goes. You know, I think even calling it the PayPal is selling it short, Brian. You know, it's it's basically you take eBay, you take Amazon, you take PayPal, throw Square in there. You know, uh, there there are so many different services that it is able to bundle up in a really effective way, and and that to me is just a very easy investing case. We've seen this model work. We're seeing it now being applied to a different market. And we talked a little bit before about the businesses that 2020 created step changes for. And the numbers for this company got huge in 2020. So just to put a, a couple of numbers to that. In Q3 of 2019, the company saw year-over-year -year gross merchandise volume of $3.6 which was a 21.6% increase in US dollars, 37% increase if you're neutral on foreign exchange. Q3 of 2020, so a year later, gross merchandise volume almost $6 billion, an increase of 62% in US dollars and 117% on an FX neutral basis. Items sold over 200 million for the most recent quarter that we have data on, double what it was a year ago. It doesn't really matter which core business metric you look at. Everything went off in 2020. I look at this and I say, 
it's a business that was already experiencing adoption, Brian. I think those are people that are probably going to be here to stay. Well, I would have to uh, agree with you there. And if you want to go really exciting, despite this company being one of the biggest winners in the market uh, over the last uh, 10 years and had been a monster, monster, uh, I think multi-hundred bagger uh, since coming public, it's an $84 billion business. So it hasn't even crossed the $100 billion uh, mark. And again, with companies like Amazon, well over a trillion, a trillion, I think there's upside here too. Yeah. I look at this and I say, it's easy. It's really easy to see this company being much bigger in three years, five years, 10 years. I don't see a lot that's going to disrupt the thesis. And it's nice to be able to have short putts, Brian. You know, that's, that's kind of what we're looking for here. That's right. Now, the valuation is pretty darn high, so it wouldn't surprise me if this stock traded sideways for a couple of years while the fundamentals caught up to the, uh, to the valuation. But uh, like you, I think five years from now, 10 years from now, uh, this company will be bigger. Yeah. And, and the necessary caveat, I always have to add this when we talk about Mercado Libre. I mentioned before, they do business in, in fragmented markets. They're in, I think, over a dozen countries uh, in South America. Um, they have to take results that are reported in a bunch of different currencies and then basically repatriate them, uh, state them in US dollars. Um, and because of that, a lot of crazy things can happen uh, with currency swings and what that actually reflects in their financials. So if you're looking at things on a US dollar reported basis, um, there are going to be some weird times, particularly as there's some volatility in some of the markets they operate in. This is a business where you have to look, I think, at the key business metrics and really follow those to get a sense of what is going on. So as long as those continue to post insane growth, which they have, um, I, I am going to be a long-term bull on this business. The interesting thing there, Dylan, is the, the currency movements have worked against this company heavily for as long as I've been following them. I mean, at least at least five, five years. Currencies tend to ebb and flow, and there might be the day when currency movements actually work in this company's favor. Uh, so that could be, imagine what it could do if, if currency all, became, all of a sudden became a reason to own this stock. Yeah, I mean, you talked about the last five years, Brian. In in that period, uh, it's been uh, a fifteen hundred percent winner, <laughs> Some, something roughly in that neighborhood. So, you know, d- despite operating in a very tough economic environment during that period, it has proven to be a very strong business. And so, it's my largest holding. It's one of Brian's largest holdings. Um, I know a lot of fools are huge fans, but but I know a lot of the names we threw out here, Brian, are are ones that are very popular in the fool universe. And I think if you looked around, if we were at HQ rather than doing this virtually, um, you would find a lot of fans of all of these businesses. And importantly, the biggest lesson I've learned in investing is winners keep on winning. And all the companies that we've talked about thus far have been winners. And I would personally bet that all of them are going to keep on winning. Yeah. And you know, that's that's a great way to end this on, Brian, because I'm sure a lot of folks look at the stock price charts for these companies and say, oh, come on. You're, like, you're telling me to pick up shares of this thing? Um, yeah. I've, I've said that pretty much every time I've bought back in to Axon uh, and, and Mercado Libre. And I'm sure three or five years from now, I'll be saying that when I buy back into Pinterest again. <laughs> Fair enough, Dylan. <laughs> yes, it is extremely mentally, mentally difficult to buy something uh, like Pinterest. Pinterest is $70 today. As I said, nine months ago, when this company was trading at 10 I said, wow, that just makes uh, no sense. It's incredibly hard to say, oh, I'm going to buy this thing at 70 today that I could have bought nine months ago at 10. But you have to be able to, you have to be willing to do that if you want to buy into the best growth stocks. You just do. I mean, it's, it's part of the mindset when it comes to investing. 
Um, and you know, it's it's just what you what you have to suffer through. Um, but you know, when when you look at the returns, it makes it worth the anguish. I think. I think that's right, Dylan. <laughs> so just quickly to recap our our tech stocks for 2021, we got Pinterest, we have Axon, we have Mercado Libre, and I think we can say collectively we have a high degree of conviction in all three of those. Um, just based on the fact that we've we've got skin in the game on two out of three, soon to be three out of three for both of us. Um, so yeah, I own there's... all three, Dylan. <laughs> so you can you can catch up anytime you'd like. I was saying we, Brian. I was saying we. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because this was a theme week, I just want to quickly recap what we had earlier in the week. Um, Matt Frankel pitched Wells Fargo on Monday uh, on the Consumer Goods Show on Tuesday. Uh, Asit Sharma pitched Sleep Number, and Emily Flippin pitched Airbnb. Uh, on Wildcard Wednesday, we had Brendan Matthews with Workday and Jason Moser with Massimo. And then Energy, oh my gosh, these guys went crazy. We have uh, Jason Hall pitching Brookfield Infrastructure Partners, you can tell I don't say that name a lot, BIP, uh, and Nick Seipel pitching Berkshire Hathaway, NV5, and Texas Pacific Land. A lot of names there, Brian. I think that's that's going to be a fun basket to track in 2021. That is a motley group of stocks, and we would have it no other way, right? Absolutely. You know, and that's the beauty of the show, is we talk about every sector of the stock market, get a little exposure to everything. Um, Brian, so great to be back with you. Happy to be in 2021. Happy to be back on the podcast routine. I'm thrilled to be here, Dylan. Thanks for joining me. You too, bud. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, fool on.